and welcome to Behind the Glass Cabinet, a podcast where I, Ellie Armstrong, explore how science is constructed and displayed in museums. Each week, I'll be joined by a co-host for a conversation about a particular item you can go and see in a London museum. Together, we'll challenge, dissect and celebrate the stories the artefact could tell. I'm Hannah Ayub. I am a creative producer and an artist, uh, mostly working in science engagement and science art. Um, For today's podcast, it's probably also important to say that um, my academic background is in zoology um, and I've always been particularly interested in animal behaviour and primate behaviour. So Hannah, what have you brought for our listeners today? So we're going to be talking about an orangutan that Alfred Russell Wallace brought back from Borneo um, that's currently in the Natural History Museum in London. Fantastic. And for our listeners who might not have been to the Natural Mm -hmm. History Museum, can you describe where it is, how we might get to it? So it is on the first floor balcony that's around the Hints Hall. Excellent. And it's part of a collection of objects to do with scientists yes and so it's there with sort of a portrait of alfred russell wallace um, and also a photo of his guide ali who he worked quite closely with as well fantastic and why have you selected this so um there's a few different reasons uh orangutans are my favorite animal um as cheesy as that might sound um so an orangutan was sort of the reason why i ended up studying animal behavior in a weird way um so I was um, I was visiting Chester Zoo with my A-level psychology class and for anyone who hasn't been, the orangutan enclosure is sort of sunken down and you sort of view it from above. And the our guide was explaining to us that the orangutans seem to like sort of being near people so much that they would swing a rope up to sort of the viewing bit um loop the rope through like a bit of structure and like tie it tight so they could sit on the rope and sort of look at the people um and as this guide was telling us about it i sort of had my hand on the glass and a right hand put their hand right up against mine um and now having gone through a zoology degree and everything i'm like there's probably very little you can take from that Um, and i have issues with apes or being in zoos and all of those sort of things but i still find orangutans absolutely fascinating animals um and my mum's family is also from Southeast Asia, and so Malay is a language I speak. And so there's something extra special for me if you know the fact that like, orang, orang utan is like, th- those words literally mean man of the forest to me. Um, so yeah, it's an animal that's special to me on many levels. This is uh, this is interesting that your first experience with an orangutan was in the zoo, because mm. uh, when I was looking into this uh, for the podcast today, mm-hmm. um, I was reading particularly about uh, Wallace and Darwin and their mm. competing theories of evolution. And one of the papers I came across was talking about how Darwin had come across an orangutan in the zoo in London. Mm. And, then, and then it was like comparing this to Wallace's experience of being in the jungle in Borneo mm-hmm. and the kind of different experiences in the way that that may have shaped some of the thoughts that they have yeah. about their their relationship with other primates as as part of the evolutionary tree um because what wallace is famous for is is also being a competing theorist of evolution yes, with Darwin. yes exactly um so if i remember correctly um wallace actually sort of sent his theory to um darwin and darwin then invited him to sort of present it with him um i think it was at a british science association meeting um and sort of Darwin got a lot of the credit, but 
from from what re- records say, Wallace, you know, wasn't particularly resentful of this or anything. He just was sort of glad that, you know, the theory was out there and they stayed good friends. So so Wallace collected a lot of stuff and this is part of the reason why he's in the museum to begin with. Yeah, he, during eight years um, in the Malay archipelago, which is sort of modern day Malaysia and Indonesia, he collected 125,660 specimens, which included 5,000 new species. <laughs> So, you know, amazing contribution to zoology. Yeah, so I was looking on the Natural History Museum and they say that the, their collection of the stuff that Wallace mm. sent back has 2,500 2, species wow. and 100 of them are type specimens, which are mm. the exemplar of the species yep. that we hold. Um, and there's this orangutan. So is this mm-hmm. is the one in the display the one that um, Wallace sent back? Do we know? Yes, it is, according to the Natural History Museum website. Um, it's one that he brought back from Borneo with him. One of the things I really like about the actual display um, that the orangutan's in is it sort of references Ali, who's this Malay um, teenager from Sarawak who worked with Wallace quite closely, started off as a cook and servant, but became his sort of, you know, main assistant who did lots of his collecting. And unusually, both... Uh, unusually for the time Wallace acknowledged Ali's involvement he wrote about him quite a lot he talked about um how you know how good Ali was at preserving specimens and it contrasts with him complaining about one of his like you know British assistants that he took over with him um but the the display also says that you know that was rare both then and now you know we still live in a time where a lot of research is going on in the developing world and not everyone is getting the acknowledgements that they should get or where we can't really decide what acknowledgements people should be getting for their, you know, contributions to research. Fantastic. So just before we like think about the present mm. day, going back to thinking about Ali, mm. presumably Ali wasn't the only person who was working with Wallace from the Southeast Asian area. No, um, I think there's. I was reading something about um, someone was trying to work out what Ali's salary might have been, um, and as part of it, they were looking through like records of lots of Wallace's staff, and I think he worked with quite a lot of different people. Presumably, there must have been people who were like uh, cooks, yeah, people yeah. who helped with the collecting. Yeah, I mean, these like expeditions were were enormous undertakings. I think this, you know, they still are today. Yeah. Um, which I think really speaks to the fact that science isn't this, you know, pursuit that is done by, you know, lone sort of geniuses or these mm. heroes of science that we hear about who are usually white men. Um, and instead, they are these like massive team undertakings um, in order to sort of uncover the unknown. Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about Charles Darwin being on a voyage on the Beagle, mm. um, I always, when I was younger, thought this was like just Charles Darwin, mm. like him alone. And yet, like, there must have been hundreds of people, well, not, maybe not hundreds of people, but mm. tens of people yeah. helping collect and yeah. catalogue and all yeah. these things. And I mean, in the case of the beat, I don't know for sure, but I'm sure, you know, there would have been the sailors on board. There would have also, again, been local help in various areas as well. Yeah. I think there's a, an, at the National Maritime Museum in the Pacific Gallery, they mm-hmm. have a model of a ship mm-hmm. um, that was used on like voyage exploration. Mm-hmm. And it's got like all of the different people. They've got the like oh, wow. figurines of all the different people. So mm-hmm. you can see like there would be like a captain, but there would also be like a hundred sailors mm-hmm. and like a bunch of sheep for them to eat and a cook. And like, just gives like a better feel for like how many people are involved mm-hmm. in these like long scale, long term uh, journeys. Yeah. And it's not just with kind of like jungle exploration. It's also with, you know, like polar exploration mm-hmm. and um, exploration uh, pretty much anywhere really like relies on local 
like native indigenous mm-hmm. knowledge um, to support the, the wildly unable British explorers, really, <laughs> like, if we're honest about it. You were saying something interesting earlier about explorers' wives as well? Yeah, so so there's some, like, so I've heard from uh, some people at the Natural History mm. Museum that they have, like, lots of photographs of um, people on these expeditions and um, sometimes there are photos of the wives being there as well, but they're in, like... <laughs> cumbersome victorian <laughs> outfits and there's like midway midway through like the very you know like because especially at that time the photography would have been very slow like mm. you have to have a long exposure and everyone has to stay really still um that like <laughs> during these during these photographs like a gust of wind comes by or something so the wives are like obscured by many layers of knitting like, <laughs> um but that they're not those aren't the, those aren't the photographs we put up of ex- explorers mm. they rarely include uh like local guides or anyone else from the expedition um i know reading um donna haraway's teddy bear patriarchy there's some photographs in the american museum of natural history of um, ackley who was the founder of the museum with some of his guides Mm. um but they are still like not included in that story Mm. and they're definitely not celebrated in the museum Mm -hmm. in the way that ackley is as a as a founder Mm. so they're they're overlooked in many places and why do you think the museum might have made this curatorial choice to include ali it feels like a nod towards Wallace including Ali um, in his tales of his adventures and talking about Al- Ali's prowess at collecting things. Um, it fe- Given the absence of these guides, you know, generally in the discourse, it feels like if Wallace hadn't acknowledged him, then the museum probably wouldn't have done either. Yeah, because the other great men of science mm. who are around Wallace in that mm-hmm. space aren't, aren't co listed with other people so yeah it definitely seems like it's something special special Mm. in inverted commas about wallace's relationship with ali yeah yeah interesting so you were saying that this continues to the present day yeah i mean it's it's on a it's really difficult to know because i i was searching you know i was searching for information on what happens with local guides um today and i really wasn't getting anywhere like i just couldn't find anything um and so you know I, I tweeted about it and sort of, um, you know, was seeing what people had to say. And it was really interesting. Like, there wasn't really any consensus. Um, most people who are responding were saying, you know, they do try and acknowledge um, local help. But there's a part of me that feels like there's a self-selecting bias here where I'm probably not hearing from the people who don't care or don't think about yeah, this. Yeah. Um, and when you say acknowledge and when they say acknowledge, do they were they explicit about what that um, means? So it feels like people have different definitions of what contribution means. Mm-hmm. Um and also how um, their local help is acknowledged. So in some cases, people are pushing for um, local researchers or local field assistants to get co-authorship. I read quite an interesting paper that looked at a whole range of studies and I think found that sort of, uh, it was within a specific field, but I can't remember, Uh, but about 50% um, had co-authorship and 50% were just acknowledged and looking at why and one of the things that comes out is language because there does seem to be this requirement that a co-author must have read a paper in order to be included as a co-author but then there's other people saying you know there are ways to get around this if someone has made a significant contribution then they should be a co-author so it seems like there's a real mixture Um, and I think there's, there's also you know there's also constraints here so for example if a study has taken decades to complete and then there might be hundreds of people who've involved who were involved in which case acknowledgements probably makes more sense than co-authorship um so it's tricky but i mean personally i 
So I'm a co-author on two papers, which I never expected to happen after I like, you know, left research. Um, but in my first job, I worked on a clinical trial where I was helping with patient recruitment and patient support. And the sort of, you know, the heads of the study decided that that was an important enough contribution that me and a couple of my colleagues who are involved from that side were included as co-authors because, you know, the view was that, well, we wouldn't have the patients to do the study on if you hadn't, you know, <laughs> done this work. Um so it feels like, you know, in other areas of science, like medical research, there is precedence that you acknowledge work that has helped you do your research, even if it isn't the science itself. Yeah. And I think so, uh, having been to the the National Gallery, the National Museums in Scotland, mm. um, they have a section on science and the mm. very top floor is about like big science. Mm. Um, and in particular, they look at the Large Hadron Collider. Mm. They have part of the, the collider from CERN uh, because Peter Higgs is based at the University of Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. And there is a discussion there about what it means to be in a large-scale collaboration mm. even though that exhibit is fronted by an image of Peter Higgs mm. and a discussion of the Higgs boson mm -hmm. and that work so I guess like even when we think about how we might display multiple co-authorship and, and large-scale co-authorship mm. because I mean CERN is a huge project that yeah. has you know many thousands of people working mm -hmm. on it and they often they're like some of the largest um, co-authorship papers that come out yeah. is through through large-scale studies in physics so the A is like precedent for large-scale mm, co-authorship but mm. also we can see ways of being able to grapple with that in a museum mm -hmm. context as yeah. well so i think that like it's it might be interesting to think about new ways of showing collective authorship mm, mm. because even the display that we're looking at at the natural history museum ali is kind of a smaller um secondary yep. edition doesn't quite the photograph the photographic style and mm. the um way that it's positioned within the display is not the same as the way Wallace is. Mm -hmm. And whereas the way Wallace is displayed matches the other men who are, and women, because mm -hmm. there are people like Mary Anning who are featured in that display. Mm -hmm. Ali is a kind of like supplement figure. Sort of a footnote. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we could think about like, despite acknowledging mm -hmm. him in that space, mm -hmm. perhaps there are ways that this could have been done. Although, should he be of equal footing? Maybe there are discussions there. Yeah, I think it's it's tricky without the without knowing exactly what happened. Yeah. And I mean that. I mean, talking about whether Ali should be on equal footing with Wallace opens up, a, you know, an enormous sort of um, can of worms about who was involved with what science in the past. Mm. Um, so I really don't know. Yeah. Um, I think in modern day, there's some there's wider questions beyond sort of field assistance. That, and, you know, this is almost more on like a geopolitical scale um, where once I started, sort of, you know, going down this route and looking for information that, you know, the Indonesian government are starting to get quite concerned over like how science is done in Indonesia today. Um, so there's this um, piece of legislation called the, the Nagoya Protocol, um, which interestingly is something I, I studied a bit in my um, fourth year at university which is about sort of fair sharing of genetic resources. Um, so essentially sort of research into plants and animals um, and also the fair sharing of traditional knowledge from developing countries. And one of the aims behind the protocol is that this should incentivize conservation um, of sort of wild areas and it should also be fair. So if Western researchers are benefiting from research that is done in a developing nation, that that nation should, you know, gain something from it. Um, and there's some concern that like research that's happening in Indonesia today is not matching up to this protocol, um, that 
some researchers are trying to sort of get around the um, sort of visa process and permit process and sort of going in on tourist visas and then doing research whilst they're there, um, which is problematic and I think, you know, undermines trust in science and sort of, you know, international cooperation within science. Um, so interesting, like Indonesia is sort of give, trying to give priority more to local scientists, especially when they're ex exploring unexplored areas. Yeah, and I mean, also by bypassing these kind of protocols, it makes it very difficult then to think about in the future or in the near future mm. when we wanted to display or talk about these things. Yeah. It becomes very difficult to include their, like the contributions that maybe should have happened mm -hmm. by um, particular groups particular yeah. people yeah um if they were done on the slide through these like surreptitious tourist mm -hmm. visas so you were mentioned at the start that you're interested in primates mm -hmm. as a biologist as yeah. well um what particularly about kind of primate behavior because obviously primates are also where kind of darwin and and mm -hmm. um, wallace start to think a lot about like evolutionary um work so they're, they're also coming at the same kind of thing so what particularly about primates interests yeah, you? um I when I um when I was at university and particularly interested in primates like my fellow students and even some of you know my supervisors used to say oh you know you shouldn't get too caught up in sort of the charismatic megafauna which is sort of you know the pretty big animals that most people are used to seeing the pandas the lions that sort of thing um and at the time that sort of you know not quite accusation but sort of you know joke didn't quite sit right with me and I think I've realized more and more that what I like about primates is that everything's a bit more uncertain and there's a little bit of controversy over their behavior and a lot of that is to do with this fact that we sort of seem to extrapolate from primates to humans all the time um and so you know right down to the fact that we don't really know whether there's no one can quite decide whether the study of primates you know belongs in a zoology department or an anthropology department um you know i sort of got told that my final year dissertation which was about infanticide in primates would have been would have done much better if it had been marked by an anthropologist um, which i was told at the end of the year it would have been useful to know at the start of the year yeah. um but then you know i found anthropologists who study primates online sort of you know complaining that they're told that oh you shouldn't be studying primates you should be studying humans you know primatology belongs in the zoology department so it's almost like no one could quite you know yeah. figure out where it um which, there's probably a deeper thing there about trying to draw artificial boundaries in yes. science that doesn't really work. I was going to say, like, the boundary conditions, they're also kind of present in the Natural History Museum when yeah. we were looking around at the exhibits. There's mm. very few uh, primate examples in yeah. the museum. Yeah, you know, the mammal gallery doesn't seem to have any primates. Um, the bit on the evolution of humans has, I think, one um, of, like, the existing apes and then, you know, sort of lots of sort of hominids in the lead up to humans but like historic hominids rather than like contemporary yeah yeah um primates which is just really weird and i think you said that quite a lot of them are over in tring the other site yeah so according to the natural history museum staff that i spoke mm. to they mentioned that some of the primates that the collection does mm. have are at the tring museum mm -hmm. instead um but this is interesting because the Natural History Museum in London is, to many people, uh, like the site of natural history museum. Mm, like, do mm. you not have like a very large part of an important branch of uh, the mammal class? Mm -hmm. um, is is reasonably bizarre when we think yeah, about it, like critically. Yeah. yeah, it is. Like, I think. Yeah, I, I think it's great that they haven't got that the museum hasn't got too caught up in. 
over-representing mammals, which happens, you know, a lot because that they're, you know, um, so because we're mammals, there are, you know, lots and lots of birds, there's reptiles, there's bugs, yeah. there's, you know, all sorts. Um, but yeah, it does feel like, I think we managed to find a total of like three apes or maybe four, if we included, you know, some monkeys as well. Like, there really isn't much there. And perhaps this is because of some of the similarities between primates and humans do you think maybe it's a cautionary move perhaps so um I mean, one of the things I came across when I was um, researching infanticide, and it was it was a literature review, so I wasn't studying live animals, I was sort of looking at all the research that had been done, um, was that it, it's quite a controversial area. And part of that is because there's almost this moralistic fallacy that only behaviour that we feel should exist morally can exist. And something like infanticide, which is defined as basically any um, adults of a species killing a infant of that species, um, is, you know, that 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 can't happen. Or if it does happen, it's clearly a fluke. It can't be a behavior that's actually evolved, you know, to be adaptive in a species. Um, and I think part of the reason why there's such a hang up with studying infanticide in primates or there has been historically is because people are concerned about extrapolating it to humans. Um which was really bizarre is that actually infanticide in, you know, is not something that seems to ha be adaptive in humans. Like actually, you know, that it doesn't seem like there is a link there, which is really weird. But it, it's, it happens uh, with a lot of other kind of primate behaviours as well. Mm. So if we look at some uh, primate behaviours to do with like uh, sex, but mm. also uh, things to do with masturbation mm. and the way that different social structures are constructed, mm. um, they don't seem very reflective of the way that like human society may have been constructed. No, so... Um I mean, bonobos are a really interesting example of this. So um, bonobos are one of our closest relatives um, after the sort of chimpanzees and they have matriarchal societies, so they're female dominated. And when bonobo behaviour was first being studied in captivity in zoos, um, most of the researchers kept thinking that this female dominance was because they were in zoos and this was, you know, abnormal behaviour and, like, they can't possibly be a matriarchal society in the wild. And, you know, as more research has been done, we found that actually, no, they have a really, you know, strong matriarchal society um, to the point that, you know, a male bonobo who has no female relatives is actually really disadvantaged in bonobo society and um, that has been seen in captivity that if a male bonobo is introduced to a group where it doesn't have an aunt or a mom or a sister um, that it often you know struggles to get food might get attacked by other bonobos um but it, it is just so interesting that you know everyone sort of accepted um chimpanzee behavior orangutan's behavior quite readily because that's sort of you know how society should be it should be male dominated you know um but yet, bonobo society took you know quite a while for us to sort of acknowledge that that is their behaviour. That is the way that their society, yeah, like societal yeah. construct works. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So perhaps like there's an element of caution around like portraying these narratives within a museum mm. space mm. in case people make these inferences. Yeah, I think there's a much wider problem with taking animal behaviour and applying it to human behaviour. Um, yeah, I think it's something that has to be done like systematically. You need to be looking at patterns across many, many species. Um, whereas what you see happening a lot is much more simpler comparisons. So, I mean, I have lost count of the number of times that someone has tr used 
the frick, like the peacock tail as some sort of example when discussing like human sexuality it's like they're peacocks they're birds they're not even in the same class as us um you know i was recently uh, recording an episode of um why aren't you a dot yet which is, uh, the podcast i'm on um and it's just this bit where i think i just got so frustrated that i just come out with going like it's not like we say that we should eat our own poo because like rabbits do when we're more closely related to them um, and I guess that's something we should be particularly careful of in a museum setting because context can be lacking. You know, you don't have that much space for text to contextualize something. And you also can't assume that your audience are going to read everything. Um, of course, in addition to sort of gender um, and sex, that often is used about sexuality um, and homosexual behavior in the animal kingdom and extrapolating that to humans, which is an area that I am deeply uncomfortable about. Yeah. It can be really tricky to think about what uh, behaviours we're comfortable with thinking mm. are echoed in human behaviour and what mm. behaviours we are uncomfortable with. And mm. and that kind of comes back to this idea of like what is acceptable for us to talk about in the context of our society mm. and what isn't mm -hmm. and how that's reflected back into the, into the wider group. Yeah. So... Yeah, we're concerned about how we might extrapolate things from the animal kingdom, mm -hmm. behaviors from the animal kingdom mm -hmm. to the human, um, to the human kingdom. And this actually is something that we see in Darwin's work, isn't it? Mm. Um, he's very concerned about the way that society is constructed in the Victorian period being reflected in the way that society could be constructed in the animal kingdom. So thinking about the peacocks, mm -hmm. Darwin uses this as an example saying like, oh, it's all about the male species being able to show yeah. off how fantastic yeah. they are. Yeah. And, and Darwin quite notoriously also was convinced that, you know, human women were less intelligent. Um, you know, and there's... Um, and it's, Angela Sini talks about this inferior that he sort of has this exchange with a science teacher in America, Eliza Burt Gamble, who's trying to convince him that, you know, this does not actually fit within his theory. And it's really intriguing that, you know, someone who was so logical, who, you know, really did cause a paradigm shift in biology and the way we saw ourselves in the animal kingdom was so resistant to women being you know the intellectual equal of men despite that it did it doesn't make sense within his theory you know and this was someone who was quite ahead of his time as far as race was concerned you know he was quite an advocate for the idea that you know all human races were intelligent you know i think he was um he fought against slavery quite a bit but yeah no women not couldn't possibly be equals within victorian society yeah but then this kind of uh, because of the way that Darwin structures this, bec and because he's so in seminal, um, mm. or as uh, I was told the other day, feminal, um, <laughs> although maybe men can't be feminal. Anyway, um, because he was so important in the, mm. the paradigm shift mm. of biology, this goes on to inform how a lot of science is done mm. after Darwin yeah. in relation to gender. And yeah, yeah. Um, I think I, you know, I look back on being taught zoology and studying zoology now, and so much of it feels quite you know biased and, and patriarchal you know it's um you are ve it felt very much like we were introduced to all these you know fathers of the field and there are so many women you know not even just now like you know that's sort of 50 years who've been rewriting the story and they they're not talked about as much and i think there is something about science being 
especially something like evolution being portrayed as something that's like done and dusted this is how it works and you know rather than as something that's constantly evolving that's some as something that has been affected by human bias um so sarah hardy who i talked about a bit in my dissertation and who's spoken about a lot in inferior sort of the original darwinian feminist um she says that you know being a woman probably helped her to spot behavior that had previously been ignored so things like promiscuity amongst female primates which was sometimes considered a fluke or just not recorded by people who were out in the field and you know she actually started to document this a bit more and um actually you know promiscuity amongst female primates is considered one of the most likely counter strategies to infanticide because if a, if a male primate doesn't know whether an infant is his or someone else's he's a lot less likely to to kill that infant um so hardy but hardy's not incredibly recent right she's been working no, in the I field mean, for a while been, yeah so she so sarah hardy was an undergraduate in 1968 which is when she first became um interested in primate behavior um and then she basically researched for years i think until the 90s when she retired okay so she's been a researcher for in the, within the past 50 years yeah, but not yeah. not in the recent past but when we were looking in the museum at mm -hmm. the way that they were displaying figures of importance mm -hmm. in natural history yep. i think mary anning was there but mm -hmm. other than that they are much older they're all mm -hmm. 1800s early 1900s figures yep. as if like you say as if evolution is a finished mm -hmm. theory as if this is um, something that is understood which i think is something that the natural history museum as a whole i feel gives off that impression which is a bit strange given how much research is actually going on in that building. Exactly. Unlike museums like the Science Museum, mm. where there isn't any scientific research mm. in the sense of, uh, you know, actual work on conservation mm. or on um, on samples. Mm -hmm. um, there is lots of research happening within the Natural yep. History Museum. It's an active research yeah. institution. So it's interesting that they don't celebrate or show any of these. Yeah, because I think there's like there's one wing, but it's quite it's it's one of the one of the new wings where i think you can see a little bit about modern research um but it's a bit hidden away and you know it seems strange that you know you walk into hints hall and you see you know you used to see dippy you now see the whale um there's a few other skeletons you go up to the balcony and it's you know as we were just saying all these scientists from a long time ago and Unless you manage to go off into the new wing, or I think the Spirit Tour does a really good job of um, talking about current research. But that just feels like something that should be embedded throughout the museum. You know, this, like, I think if we can do any, like, I just feel like science needs to be portrayed as not only an ongoing thing, but an ever changing thing and, you know, a subjective thing. Um, and it's just, I, I personally think it's so much more exciting when it's portrayed that way rather than, you know, a list of facts and figures and some people from a long time ago who sorted it all out for us yeah and the idea that i think in particular like this idea that it's finished maybe we can see that um in the way that it's displayed in a closed cabinet mm. uh and it's kind of they're finite cabinets they're not they're not large they're not mm. um there's not lots of space there's not lots mm -hmm. of questions it's very like these are these are the important people yeah and always will be the important people mm -hmm. in this area of research yeah, so yeah. perhaps like that that idea of this like finished concrete knowledge mm. um especially to do with evolution is mm -hmm. reinforced by the way that these these objects are displayed yeah. in, that, yeah. in that in that space 
Um, is there anything else you'd like to include, Hannah? Uh, no, there isn't. I feel like we've covered quite a lot. Yeah, I think that we've had a, a romp through the Natural History <laughs> Museum today, thinking about ways that uh, we could include both uh, alternative ideas about who's involved in the scientific mm. practice, but also ideas about what it means to be doing research in mm. this area and the kind of influences that we might have based on things like gender, sexuality, understandings and the comfort of seeing the natural world reflected back mm. into uh, human nature. Actually, maybe something to think about in that is the the kind of artificial distinction that we put in between nature and culture within the Natural History Museum, yeah. you know, kind of drawing on Donna Haraway's work again, this idea mm. of seeing beyond the nature-culture divide, mm-hmm. um, which is, again, reinforced by these glass cabinets, keeping it safe and locked away, mm-hmm. might be an alternative avenue to pursue. Yeah. So Hannah, if people want to know more about you and your amazing work, where could they find you? So I have a website, which is hannahayub.co.uk. Um, I am also on Twitter at Hannah Ayub, on Instagram at hannah.ayub. I am a co-host of the podcast, Why Aren't You a Doctor Yet?, which you should all check out. Um, we bring together science and technology with popular culture and comedy, um, and we are very, very irreverent to science all the time. And it's excellent. I would recommend it to any <laughs> listener. Um, I mean, particularly if you've been interested in what we've been discussing today, um, I would recommend checking out the episode we did on Inferior and how science has got women wrong. And if you would like to see Hannah in the flesh, she is talking with Angela Saini when Angela's new book comes out in yes. the summer. Yes, um, so on the 30th of May, um, the cast of Why Aren't You a Doctor Yet will be joining Angela Saini to talk about her new book, which is all about race science. Um, so that's going to be a really interesting discussion, I'm sure. Fantastic. Get your tickets at the Royal Institution website now. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Hannah. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this episode of Behind the Glass Cabinet. Thanks to Nicolette Chin, my editor and producer. Thanks to Sam Lee, the composer for the track of this podcast. And thank you to the University College of London Department for Culture and the Department for Science and Technology Studies, without whom this podcast would not have been possible. I've been Ellie Armstrong. You can find me online at, at Ellie the Element. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.